Tonight on Piers Morgan Uncensored, the temporary ceasefire in Gaza is extended by two days, bringing joy and relief for more hostage families, but a mountain of pressing questions for Israel. I'll put them to government spokesman Elon Levy. Truce has divided opinion in Israel. Was it right to extend the deal, or is it seeding the upper hand by negotiating with terrorists? We'll debate. And a bombshell new book by Megan Lickspittal, Omid Scobie, takes aim at every member of the royal's household, apart, of course, from two people in Montecito. Does anybody in the world believe it? From the News Building in London, this is Piers Morgan Uncensored. Good evening from London. Welcome to Piers Morgan Uncensored. The temporary ceasefire in Gaza has brought scenes of unbridled joy in the middle of a relentless tragedy. 50 Israeli hostages are finally being released by Hamas. 150 Palestinian prisoners and trucks carrying much-needed aid are moving in the opposite direction. For some of the families of the Hamas hostages, it's the end of an unbearable, agonising wait. Thomas Hans' daughter, Emily, turned nine during her 50 days in captivity. His emotional interviews have made the trauma of the hostage families feel tangible for those of us who can only begin to imagine the appalling, horrifying grief. This is the moment they were finally reunited. A wonderful end to a story that could have ended so much worse and indeed was that was the fate that that poor father assumed had happened well a two-day extension to the ceasefire means more reunions and more aid but it also means more difficult questions for israel prime minister netanyahu is very clear that war will resume with full force as soon as this pause is over he's far less clear about what happens after that israel's pounding gaza for weeks now 77% of the entire population has been displaced half are in shelters where 700 people share a single shower the scale of the destruction is beyond comprehension, and Israel says it won't stop until Hamas has been eradicated. But quite clearly, Hamas still runs Gaza. It's Hamas who are negotiating the release of the hostages and dictating the terms of that release. It's Hamas who says that more than 14,000 people in Gaza have been killed. Israel claims that figure includes thousands of terrorists, but where is the hard evidence to support that claim? Where is the evidence the terrorists have simply not disappeared underground? or hidden themselves among innocent civilians who headed south? Where is the plan for the future of Gaza? Where do these people go back and live if all their homes have been destroyed? Netanyahu has ruled out a return for the Palestinian Authority, hinted that Israeli occupation might be the answer. Uh, I think Israel will, for uh, an indefinite period, will have the overall uh, security responsibility because we've seen what happens when we don't have it. When we don't have that security responsibility, what we have is the eruption of uh, Hamas terror on a scale that we couldn't imagine. This is dangerous territory for Israel. It has a rapidly narrowing window of legitimacy in Gaza. President Biden is under pressure from his supporters to speed up the end of the fighting. And America won't accept a prolonged occupation. Israel told Palestinians to move south in Gaza to escape the bombing. Now it says it'll bomb the south too. This bloodshed cannot continue without proof there's a plan beyond the total destruction of Gaza. I've been picked up this weekend by people reminding me of tweets from 2014. Back then, Israel launched a massive bombardment of Gaza in response to the murder of three Israeli teenagers in the West Bank. What happened, I'm asked. Why did I change my position? Well, I haven't changed my position. Israel committed atrocities in 2014, in my estimation. It was a completely disproportionate response to what had happened. 
it looked more like revenge to me than a military strategy. And President Obama told them to call it off. Well, during that bombardment, I asked, at what point does Israel's current military strategy become the very terrorism it professes to be fighting? And today, I'm beginning to ask myself that exact same question. Well, I'm now joined by Israeli spokesman, uh, Elon Levy. Elon uh, Levy. Elon Levy, uh, thank you very much indeed for joining me. Um, you heard my monologue there. Uh, I've said from the start of this conflict that I felt a real moral quandary. Not about uh, October the 7th. I'm crystal clear about the horror that happened there. I'm completely clear that Israel not only had a duty to its people to defend itself after that, but had a responsibility to do it. Um, the question has always been in my mind, what is a proportionate response? And as we have this pause at the moment, thank God for the release of many of the hostages, it's also time for everybody to pause and ask some pertinent questions of Israel about what the real plan is here going forward. So let me start just by asking you, where does this go now? Uh, we've got a two-day two extension to this pause. More hostages will come out, but it won't be all of them. In fact, Hamas don't even know where many of the hostages are. They're with other uh, Islamic fundamentalist groups within Gaza. Uh, Netanyahu has already said, your prime minister, that he wants to pick up the uh, attacks as soon as this pause is finished. But to what end and how far will you go? Israel's campaign now in response to the October 7th massacre is proportionate to the threat that we face. And that threat is a second October 7th, a third October 7th, the fourth million October 7th, exactly as Hamas is promising to do, to murder every man, woman, child in our country. We really wish we were not in this situation, Piers. And for many years, Israel has been putting off a possible campaign to topple Hamas. But the October 7th massacre left us no choice. It was the deadliest massacre of Jews since the Holocaust. It was the deadliest terror attack in world history since 9-11. And in response to that, our campaign is going to continue to destroy Hamas. This war will end with the end of Hamas because we cannot allow it to remain in power. And we know that the scenes on our screens are very difficult and we're doing everything we can to minimize civilian casualties. But everyone in Israel understands that the consequences of inaction would be too great to bear. Because we cannot leave Hamas in power and our hostages in Gaza, we cannot leave Hamas emboldened to continue attacking our people, to launch another murderous campaign like it did on October 7th with those barbaric acts that you have spoken so powerfully against, the burnings, the beheadings, the abductings, we, the abductions, we simply cannot go back to 6 a.m. on October 7th. That will not happen. That massacre was the straw that broke the back of a very strong camel, and this war is going to end with the end of Hamas. OK. How many uh, Palestinians, including Hamas terrorists, have you so far killed? We know that we've killed thousands of terrorists. We know well, that hang on. the OK, but let, Hamas... me, let me ask you about that. So the, the Hamas-run... Uh, health Authority says it's over 14,000 people have now been killed. Of that, I mean, do you, A, do you accept those numbers? Because they have been endorsed by other bodies. But do you accept that those numbers are, are fairly accurate? Historically, they have been. Hamas is the organisation, the army of terror that on October 7th burned, beheaded, abducted people and then lied about it to the entire no, international that. media. I understand that. So I... it is the opposite of a credible source. And no, I, I understand that, but, but, do you accept, but do you accept, given the previous figures that they have given during the many years of this conflict about 
casualties have turned out to be pretty accurate. Do you accept this is likely to be the range of people who've been killed? First of all, they haven't been proven accurate because historically Hamas never admits in the course of a war that its own terrorists are killed and that only comes to light afterwards. I'll say what we know about the numbers and we don't have exact numbers because, Pierce, I can't tell you how many Israelis were murdered in the October 7th massacre because we still have dozens of body parts, dozens of body bags of unidentifiable human remains. Mm. The idea that I can give you an exact number is not realistic, but here's what I can tell you. One, we know we've killed thousands of terrorists because our campaign has been targeting to target the monsters who perpetrated the October 7th. How do massacre. you know they're terrorists? Two, we know, how out, do we know they're interest, terrorists? How do you tell a Hamas terrorist from a Palestinian civilian who's not part of how, Hamas? Hamas is making it very difficult to do that because we know that it's. So, how do you know you've killed thousands of them? because we know who we are targeting. We are targeting on the basis of precise intelligence. This isn't an indiscriminate bombardment as many would like to paint it. Hamas knows that we do not target civilians. It seems to know that better than some in the West. That's why, for example, we recently declassified a, an intercepted phone call of Islamic Jihad terrorists talking about transporting an anti-tank missile in a baby's pram, because they know perfectly well that Israel is trying to yeah, target but here's, terrorists here's my problem. and not the civilians. Okay, but here's my problem with this, is that by your own admission, you don't know how many Hamas terrorists, and I, I categorise people who belong to the Hamas organisation as terrorists, just for, you know, for clarity. But you don't actually know, do you, how many of them you've killed? And I, I, by, your to... own, by your own, by your own admission uh, just a few moments ago, you said that they make it incredibly difficult for you to work out who is a Hamas terrorist and who is a civilian. That seems to me part of the problem that you have with the optics of this to the wider world is that they're seeing horrible imagery all day long. I mean, it's, it's just the worst thing I've ever seen all over social media. Of, well, the worst thing of, we've ever seen were the atrocities that Hamas no, no, I'm not, I'm not, October I'm just saying, I, yeah, I've not seen, thankfully, I've not seen what many journalists have seen, which is the 45-minute film of that, and I understand it's absolutely horrific. And I'm not making any, I'm not making any comparison. Any bodies, no, I'm not, I, I, I would video. not say anything is worse than that, so for the record. Uh, but the horrible imagery all day long, it is suggesting to people that there are thousands and thousands of thousands of women and a lot of children, maybe as many as five, 6,000 children now, have been killed by these uh, uh, airstrikes and now the ground attack. And I think the problem that you have, and I say this respectfully, the problem you have is that you don't actually know how many Hamas terrorists you're killing. I mean, if you're honest, you don't, do you? Piers, the sad fact is everyone who has been killed in the Gaza Strip in the last month and a half would still be alive if Hamas had not launched this war with the October 7th massacre and then fought out of densely populated civilian areas that it has done its darndest to prevent people from evacuating in order to get to safety while we try to get them to safety. But I want to say something about the civilian uh, casualties because I think this is important. We know that we've killed thousands of terrorists. We know that Hamas is inflating the numbers. You, you don't actually know and that. we believe... But that's, that's my problem know. with this. You say no, you, say you have, we... but when I push you for the details, you don't have them. And that, that Piers, for me... I that, still that, can't that's the tell problem you exactly you... how many Israelis were murdered in the October 7th I understand massacre, that. Because I, we're still and that's horrific. No, but I agree and with I... you. That is utterly horrific that you still can't determine how many people were killed that day because of the horrors that were perpetrated. You and I are in complete agreement. But nor do you know how many of these Hamas terrorists are killing. It could be that vast numbers of them 
and we think there are around 35,000 perhaps in total, that vast numbers of them either disappeared into the tunnels and have been uh, safely there ever since or simply went south with the million or more uh, Palestinian supposed civilians that went down there. Maybe a lot of them infiltrated that, that group and are down in the south. You don't actually know, do you, for sure? Piers, during the Afghanistan war, and I believe your brother, a real military hero, fought in that war, British military spokespeople could not have given you a running commentary in real time about exactly how many Taliban fighters were killed. During the Second World War, and I know your grandfather was a war hero who fought the Japanese to liberate Burma, the British army could not have given a running tally of how many civilians were killed there or how many Japanese were being killed. These are facts that become clear when the fog of war clears. And what I can tell you is that when the fog of war clears, and the numbers become clear about the civilian to combatant ratio mm. inside the Gaza Strip. And you compare that to other counter-terrorism wars fought by Western armies, like the British in Afghanistan, like the British in Iraq, like the British against Islamic State, that ratio is going to prove very firmly the extent to which the Israeli army has gone to try to keep civilians on the other side safe from the consequences of their own, their own leaders' reckless and evil and barbaric attempts to try to keep them in harm's way. Piers, every civilian casualty is a tragedy. Civilian casualties are a feature of every war, and they are a feature of this war that Hamas began and that Hamas is that forcing is true, us to but the reason I'm pushing you, The areas. reason I'm pushing you on it is simply because you say you've killed thousands of Hamas terrorists. And the reason I think this is such a, an important question is there have been reports that once this pause is over, that Israel intends to then attack in the south uh, and may give further warnings to people that are out of certain areas, but will attack in the south and presumably destroy uh, the areas that you attack there as you have done in the north, making it almost uninhabitable for people to return to. Uh, and all of this is part of Operation Get Rid of Hamas. But if the world doesn't know how much of Hamas you're getting rid of, but only sees day after day, hour after hour, images of children dead, women dead, innocent civilians caught up in this, then I think the global support for Israel is going to dissipate very quickly. That's why it's really important, I think, for Israel to better demonstrate to people that your mission is being accomplished. Because, you know, otherwise you could be here in six months, a year, and the civilian death toll in, in Gaza could be over 100,000. And we might be having the same conversation where you're still not sure how many Hamas terrorists you've killed. That's the problem, it seems to me. Piers, I'm slightly surprised by this question because in the fog of war, no country, no military in the history of warfare could ever give you an exact running tally I'm not for an exact number. the casualties. But I'm saying we know that we are targeting Hamas. We know that we are targeting the monsters who perpetrated the October 7th massacre. And we know that we are trying to foil their strategy to hide behind women and children. And just this week, we've exposed the world the evidence of the bunkers that they built underneath the Shifa hospital that so many have spent so long trying to cover up and deny that Hamas okay, is capable what happens, of using that strategy uh, of human shields. Let me ask you, what happens, at the, assuming this war ends, and, and please God it ends sooner rather than later, but assuming it ends, Benjamin Netanyahu has said he intends to effectively occupy, that Israel to occupy Gaza for security reasons indefinitely. Well, that's really what he said, indefinitely. That is you would You would be in charge of security. I mean, you're already in charge of a lot of their food, their energy, their water. If you start adding security as an umbrella, basically you're occupying Gaza. That is not anything that anybody wants outside of, it seems to me, him and his cabinet. I mean, it's not, no. what you would, it's not what you would want, is it? 
No, Piers, Israel does not want to occupy the Gaza Strip, and that is why 18 years ago Israel left the Gaza Strip. So why Israel would he say why would 8, he say 000... he wants to do that indefinitely for security reasons? Because the sad fact is the Prime Minister has said we do not want to occupy Gaza. To say that the Prime Minister said that is simply false. He said Israel will have to, for some period, to exercise security control to prevent that How area do do from that? being demilitarized, just as President Biden said in his own column in the Washington Post that there will have to I be interim understand, but how do you do arrangements. That? How do you do that? We're going to have to prevent smuggling of any weapons inside the Gaza Strip after we have totally destroyed the Hamas terror infrastructure. You know, Piers, in the years that Israel has been out of the Gaza Strip, all that concrete that went into Gaza and was supposed to build people's houses went into, the t went into tunnels. All those pipes that were supposed to go into water pipes, Hamas dug them out and then filmed propaganda videos of them turning those me, water pipes okay, into rockets and shooting you, them at Israel. And that did, is what we have to prevent to stop this happening again. But if you displace the vast majority of civilians, as you have, and you destroy large amounts of their homes, what do they come back to? After the day after Hamas, and I wish it were next week, but it will take time, there are three things that are going to have to happen. The first is the Gaza Strip must be demilitarized. We will never allow it to be used as a base for operations from a terrorist group to direct attacks against our people, just as the UK and 85 other nations came together to deny ISIS its territorial stronghold. And they did to, Ras to, Ra to Raqqa and Mosul what they did to Raqqa and Mosul because they understood that a jihadi group like that must never be allowed to hold territory to attack innocent people. The second thing is the Gaza Strip must be de-radicalized. You know, the youngest terrorists who perpetrated the October 7th massacre weren't even born when Israel vacated the Gaza Strip in 2005, and they were raised on a diet to glorify you, okay, jihad and martyrdom. Point, and point, the third thing, I want to address okay. the question of reconstruction. Yeah. The Gaza Strip is going to have to be rebuilt, and this time, it's going to have to be rebuilt in a way that ensures that the concrete genuinely goes to people's homes and doesn't go into pe into the tunnels, because otherwise we're going to be in the same situation. I understand, situation but this sounds very like again, to me. The and the only... consequences right, for the Palestinians the only way you can will do also be severe. But with respect, the only way you can do all this is with a form of occupation, whether you want to call it that or not. It's the only way you can do this. And my other question to you would be this: Is that is there not a danger? You talk about radicalization there. Is there not a danger that the longer this goes on and the more innocent people you kill as you try and target uh, Hamas, that you build up a whole new generation of Palestinians who are radicalised to hate Israel and want to exact revenge? Isn't that a real, a real concern right now? You know, I don't think during the Second World War when the Allies were bombing the Germans and the Japanese, people claimed that if you continue bombing Germans and Japanese, you'll raise a new generation of Nazis. And that's because they realized these were people who were radicalized beyond measure. And after the war, there had to be a serious process of de-radicalization. Piers, the facts are that 85% of Palestinians across the West Bank and the Gaza Strip support Hamas's atrocities on October 7th. That is the first polling evidence that has come out. The level of radicalization is already severe. And it is that radical element that we have to deny a stronghold from which to perpetrate atrocities against our people. And we think it's important that the whole international community understand the extent of the rot of the Hamas death cult that has raised a whole generation, tragically, after the greatest opportunity for peace in the Middle okay. East, that 2005 withdrawal, there has to be a serious push towards de-radicalization to ensure that this never happen again. And we expect the international okay, but the community big question, to work hand in hand with us on Okay, that. listen, I've got to leave it there. But the big question is whether what you're doing now and what you intend to do in the next few weeks and months will actually 
begin the end of that radicalization or make it a lot worse? And that is a question I think we just don't know the answer to. Uh, but Elon well, Levy, thank you very much indeed for joining can, me. Could I complete an answer, perhaps? If you're quick. If this war doesn't end with the end of Hamas and the return of our hostages, we know that Hamas will attack us again. That's what it says it wants to do. And so if you're talking to me about extremism, we know that a Hamas that feels emboldened because the world tells it Israel has no right to defend itself, that is the surefire recipe for more radicalism and extremism and more death. And we're determined to put an end to this cycle of violence and we'll end it. We'll end this war and we'll do it by ending Hamas. Elon Levy, I really appreciate you joining me. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much, Piers. Anytime. On Sensor next tonight, should Israel negotiate with Hamas, or is it simply giving the upper hand to a terror group that still has more than 150 hostages under its control and that of other Islamic groups in Gaza? We'll debate. Back to Uncensored. Israel is divided over its hostage deal with Hamas, which has now been extended for a further two days. One major poll found that 45% of Israeli Jews oppose the ongoing prisoner swap, while just 40% support it. Yudhimar Ben-Gvir, a right-wing security minister, called it a very, very big mistake. So does negotiating with terrorists weaken Israel's position? Or should Israel's allies be pressing to make this ceasefire permanent? My next guests have clashed in the past on this show with the crisis in Gaza. Last time they appeared together, I said keeping the dialogue open is the only way forward and they'd both be invited back. And so tonight, they're invited back. And I'm joined by Nadine Kizwani, the activist and founder of the Palestinian community organisation within our lifetime, and by the journalist and broadcaster, Emily Austin. Well, welcome to both of you. Uh, Nadine, let me start with you, if I may. Uh, there's a, a pause at the moment. It's been extended by two more days. There are hostages being released back to Israel. There are prisoners being released back to uh, the Palestinians. What is your view of where things should move from here? I think it's important that when we talk about hostages to also understand that there are thousands of Palestinian prisoners that have been held in Zionist dungeons and Zionist prisons uh, for years and years. And um, it's important that they are also freed and that the 2.3 million Palestinians in Gaza, uh, which is effectively a concentration camp, are also being held hostage. So I think all hostages um, should be freed when we look at the context of Palestinians, prisoners, um, and not to call them hostages, but understanding that it's, you know, the same uh, kind of line of thinking. All right, Emily Austin, I mean, the, the thing about the Palestinian prisoners who've been in Israeli jails, I was shocked by not necessarily the age of so many of them, because uh, uh, I knew that a lot of young teenagers in particular mm. had been rounded up for throwing rocks at soldiers and so on. But the fact that so many are being held in detention without charge, that makes me feel very uncomfortable. Are you comfortable with that? Um, most of the prisoners that were part of this exchange were actually tried and, you know, convicted of the crimes, most of them being attempted murder. There is a narrative going around that there hasn't been fair trials, that they haven't been convicted, but that's simply not true. And there's one in particular that's going very, very viral on Twitter of Ahmed Al-Mansra, Al who was convicted at 12 years old. This is a photo of him then, a photo of him now, and they're saying that he was abused in Israeli prisons. But if you look closely, you can see him stabbing two civilians at 14 years old. And a lot of them are calling this kid innocent just because he's a child. But at 14 years old, if you're stabbing civilians, you might be a child, but you're definitely not innocent. And contrary to what Nardine just said, 
There is no equivalency. This is not a hostage exchange. This is an exchange of criminals for children. Okay, these are babies who are being held captive for someone who tried to stab a soldier. Another baby for another woman who tried to stab a soldier. Another baby whose crime was being a Jew versus another woman who tried to stab another soldier. Versus another baby whose crime is being an Israeli who was released for a woman who tried to stab a soldier. So I'm sorry, this is not a hostage exchange. This is a criminal exchange for our civilians back who are taken out of their homes. Okay, Nadine, respond to that. Thousands of, yeah, thousands of Palestinians are held under administrative detention, which, as you said, means that they don't even get charged with anything, let alone a fair trial, and that these de administrative detention, um, de you know, detentions can be renewed every six months. And even when Palestinians are tried, oftentimes Palestinians are tried in military courts, and there's a 99% or higher than 99% conviction rate of Palestinians being tried in military courts. Children are not tried in military right. courts anywhere else around the world. Well, but, um, on okay, top of so, that, I mean, Palestinians get 20 years just for throwing stones. Right, so Nadine, let me, let me ask facts. you, about this question of a permanent ceasefire, Israel just made it clear to me through their government spokesman they've got absolutely no intention of having any ceasefire. This war continues in their eyes until they have defeated Hamas. What is your response to that? Is the murder of 20,000 Palestinians, 8,000 of them being children, not enough? You know, I think that no matter what they say, uh, no matter who they're going after, there's always going to be Palestinian resistance. So that argument um, is essentially saying that they're never going to stop killing Palestinians and that they're completely justified in doing so. Would you categorize... I mean, look at the well, hang on. Would you, let me ask rhetoric. you, would you categorize what happened on October the 7th as resistance? Sorry, I didn't hear your... Would you categorise what happened on October the 7th as resistance? I, yeah, I would categorise it um, as resistance. It's and it's not, not though, my categorisation where that's coming it's from. It's terrorism. Is there any categrorisation of Palestinian resistance, armed resistance, that you wouldn't categorise as terrorism? I think when several thousand people stormed... Israel wouldn't I think when several thousand people stormed over a border... Oh, hang on, let me, let me just, let me just respond. I think when several thousand people storm over a border and attack peace-loving people in, a, in kibbutzes and butcher them to death, raking people's heads off, killing babies, incinerating people... Many of those people, people were killed by Israel itself. But, but that is... But, Israel but Nadine, actually, we have to agree... That Israel incinerated a 12-year-old... We have to agree, though, before we get to... But before we get to Israel's response, you must accept that what happened that day was an act of terrorism, surely? I don't live in a concentration camp, and neither do you, and neither does Emily. I haven't lived under the brutal conditions that the people of Gaza have had to endure for the better part of the last two decades. It's not up to me to tell people who are breaking free from a concentration camp how exactly they should do that. Right, and like I said, when Palestinians tried to do that this peacefully in 2018, camp they were shot at. Right, this Emily is Gaza. This is a very beautiful concentration camp that is Gaza, and it's a damn shame that Hamas terrorists are invading this very beautiful-looking concentration camp. If only the Jews were that lucky to have such a beautiful concentration camp. Nardine, listen, 
Pierce, let's cut to the chase. I can't Stop see photos of what's being October 7th. shared. So Stop this asking is, her to uh, condemn not, October 7th when she is borderline a terrorist herself. She herself incites violence. She herself protests and always incites violence and vandalism, even though vandalism, vandalism is not protected by our First Amendment. So how do you expect her to condemn terrorism when she has openly said that it is an act of resistance and she continues to justify Meanwhile, it? you're the one and on I also national want to say, TV Nardine, defending Nardine, the murder I'm not of I'm not children. done speaking. I was about I don't care to say about it is a speaking. damn I'm not shame. Here to debate you. And I don't care about you either. And I'm here to say, I'm just going to keep speaking. Clearly, every you care about me. You're tagging me speaking about the media all the time. Every single life that is taken on either side is abhorrent. It is atrocious, and I wish it would stop. Israel cannot stop until Hamas is defeated. Israel is the only military in the world that will knock on doors, send out pamphlets, send out alarms on roofs, and warn civilians to leave. And Hamas will rather the barricade their own civilians. Emily, Emily, the psychological warfare let me ask is Emily a question. hostages without their mothers and their Emily, siblings. Emily, let me That's ask Emily a question. Warfare. Emily, Emily, here's my question for you: Is that I think there's a real danger for Israel of this happening sooner rather than later? That if they start attacking the South as well, as seems to be the intention after this pause is over, and the death toll of innocent Palestinians continues to skyrocket, and they can't produce any hard evidence, as they clearly can't at the moment from my last interview, uh, of how many actual Hamas terrorists they're killing in the process, that they're going to lose the moral support and the high ground uh, and the, the global support for them will disintegrate for, the, for Israel. That is a real, a real potential danger here. I completely disagree. I think it's not Israel. Israel did its due diligence. Israel did its part. They warned civilians to leave. So all of the condemning that Israel is receiving, Hamas should be receiving because they are using their civilian, their, their own civilians, their women and their children as human shields instead of having them evacuate. Those who evacuated, they are And we can say the safe. same about you October 7th. Why you should be condemning, me, okay. condemning okay. all of the border. Let me go to Nadine. Don't talk over each other, please. Don't talk over each other. Let me go to Nadine for a we can say the same about October 7th. October 7th wouldn't have happened if Israel was not occupying Palestinian land, if there wasn't a siege and blockade on, Pal uh, on Gaza, if our land wasn't stolen from us. And this has been clear for so many years. Palestinians were talking about this, were protesting about this for years and years and years while the world ignored them. Why, why are there kibbutzes? next to Gaza's border. Are they a buffer zone? Are they human shields? Actually, it's Israel that's using Judaism and using its own citizens as human shields to mass slaughter, to mass genocide Palestinians. And you Nadine, do you think... Nadine, do you, you let me you ask you a question. terrorists, but it is Israel Nadine, that has killed 8,000 Palestinian children, Nadine, not the other way around. Nadine, do you believe Hamas should stay in it's power Hamas. in Gaza? It's not hang, on, hang on, Emily. Should, should Nadine Hamas stay in power in Gaza? I believe that Palestinians should be free. That's what I'm. That here wasn't to talk my question. About. I'm here. I'm here to say that. That's not yeah, my question. Don't answer your question. That's not up to me. I don't live. No. I don't live in. Well, you got a very. I don't live in. You have Gaza. a lot of opinions about this. Is your opinion that Hamas should stay in power? Yes or no? I believe that Palestinians wouldn't need resistance groups. All right, if we you're not going to answer the question. All right, Emily. So, no, no, yes, that is I, answering ask... the question. Actually, well, you haven't answered the question. I've given you several chances. No, it is answering the question. Of course, they either stay in power or that, they don't. No, there wouldn't be a resistance group such as Hamas or itself 
in power if there wasn't anything to resist, if there wasn't an Israeli right, occupation. Emily, last words to Emily. Pierce, can I respond, please? Yes. I want to debunk this occupation myth once and for all. Nardine, when was the last time Palestinian had full sovereignty over the land of Israel? When was the last date that they had sovereignty over the land? When was the last prime minister? When did you this have your own currency? This is not debunking anything. When There's did you clearly have a Palestinian an occupation. Answer There's my clearly question. a siege and blockade. Why? I'm not here to answer well, your when questions. You're a genocide denier. You're justifying you on live television the live mur the murder can of 8,000 Palestinians. When children? did Palestine have sovereignty over the land? Since she can't answer it from me. That's oh, a fair question. She just called me a genocide denier. Off of our land, this is your genocide. This is, this is Palestinian population growth. Palestine this is not a genocide. For generations and generations this is not before a genocide. 1948. You know the sad thing? You know the sad thing? Right, time out, time out. The sad thing about this is, at some point, we are going to have to bring the two sides together to reach a peace settlement. And yet every time I bring people from both sides of this debate together, this is how it goes. It looks completely because implacable. Because she's using land as an excuse to kill Let Jews. Let me speak to you one-on-one, on one Piers. I don't know why and you're bringing land was this never sports occupied. journalist who's obsessed, who's obsessed with making, oh, yeah, taking you bring the attention on herself. Oh, yeah, you bringing a terrorist is better. When okay. Palestinians, okay. can I finish? Yeah. Okay. Sure, call me a terrorist on live television. I think we've Wonderful. reached the... There was three Palestinian Americans okay. who were shot I think we've reached the end of civilized debate this is important. I want to say this. I want to say one thing. Three Palestinian Americans were shot here on U.S. soil for wearing and a that scarf. Is okay, I'm so when you're it. calling me a terrorist and on TV horrible. and say that there's incitement against you, you're actually inciting I'm against actually you. Gonna you just the interview now now the public the library. You incited children. violence Here's on myself and Pierce one -on -one and Louise. All right. Nardine, you are inciting violence. Emily, Nadine, I'll leave you to both continue shouting at each other. I'm sorry it ended like that. I want to have constructive debate. This doesn't get anyone anywhere. Uh, but I appreciate you both joining me again. Thank you. On TV Uncensored a, Next, a bombshell new book by Megan loyalist Obid Lickspittle Scobie takes aim at every member of the royal household again, but not, of course, the Duke and Duchess of Netflix. Does anybody in the world believe it? I'm going to reveal something which strongly suggests you shouldn't. And um, we'll debate this next. Back. Harry and Meghan's unofficial mouthpiece, Lickspittle, Omid Scobie, is back in the headlines with a new book, Endgame. Scobie and the Sussexes deny they're in cahoots, as they did with the last book, until Meghan was put under oath and had to admit actually she had emailed her aides some thoughts before they sat down with the authors, um, which you might think is being in cahoots. Well, are they again in cahoots? Let's discuss this with author and historian Tessa Dunlop and royal commentator Hilary Fordwich. So let me start with you, Tessa. So given you normally park yourself in the defending the indefensible about all things Sussex, what do you I think of the Scobie's late... Just when it seemed like they were getting off the radar, back comes Scobie uh, with a series of apparently damning revelations about all the royals apart from the two in Montecito. Yeah, from all the extracts that we've had access to and from the interviews that Omid's done and the likes of uh, Paris Match, uh, certainly he's parked his tanks firmly on their lawn. Queen Victoria recommended against royals having friendships and if Omid was once the Sussex's friend, I bet they could flick him off like slime right now because the timing's terrible and I feel that Omid is actually behind the curve on this. While you've moved on a bit, I think, I'll give you credit, and Harry and Meghan, to an extent, I think, after the sort of 
balm of the, the, the Netflix and the book had been really quite stum, Omi seems to be sort of stuck in the past. Well, also, he's a liar. And I'll tell you how I know he's a liar, because he writes a bit about me in the book. I know, I was going to ask you about that. Did I, I got a copy of the book today, and I just checked, as you do. It's a digital copy. I did mm. a little search. Up I come three or four times. And on one occasion, he states, as a fact, that I have regular phone conversations with Queen Camilla. For the record, I have never had a single phone conversation with Queen Camilla. Now, he says, as a fact, in his book, that we have regular phone conversations. That, I know personally know, is an absolute lie. He also says that when I said on Good Morning Britain that Meghan Markle was Princess Pinocchio, uh, that apparently she reached out to me, Queen Camilla, to thank me for standing up for the firm. Did she? I had zero contact with Queen Camilla around that time at all. So you've got all. no embossed thank you notes no, from Camilla nothing. before she was a queen? Nothing. Is there any communication? I did, however, as I said publicly at the time, have conversations with several other members of the royal family, but it wasn't Queen Camilla. So my point, it was come to Hillary. Uh, Hillary, I know personally that just the little bits about me are completely untrue. They're lies. So why should I believe any of this stuff? Well, you're absolutely right to question it. I remember the time that you said that if she uh, told you the weather, you wouldn't believe her. Mm. Um, a few things here I would say. They say if you're going to lie, be big, go bold. He states things so factually that I think your average person, of course, they can't sift through things. They don't know that you know that these were um, mm. mistruths and that bold-faced lies. So if you go so big, people will actually almost assume it's got to be true. I'll tell you something, though, Piers, that some, someone that nobody really is mentioning and no one's talking about, and that is Meghan Markle's dear friend, very close friend that she's posted online, whom she loves, and that is Marcus Anderson. Well, as we know, Omid Scobie has a very close relationship to him. Who knows how much of this is actually coming from him, and maybe that's the source of a well, lot yeah, of these you know lies what? It's as a well, really, whom he's quoting. It's a really good point, because we know, we know, because she went under oath in a court case, Meghan Markle had to admit she briefed an aide to then brief Scobie and the co-author. And what about Correct. this, Tessa? There's a point in the book where he, he talks about the contents of letters between King Charles and Meghan Markle, in which two members of the royal household... I know who they supposedly are, right, these two people. Let's call them royal household. That two of them had expressed these infamous concerns about the skin colour of uh, baby Archie before he was born, right? But my question is, obviously he's not got that from King Charles. No. So he can only have got it from Meghan Markle or her friends or people she's told this to, right? So, you know... It, it's, it's two things, this book. One is blatant lies. Secondly, stuff he can only have got from Meghan Markle. It is deeply unhelpful and poorly timed from the Sussexes' point of view, which is why I don't think they have collaborated with him recently. Remember, this book's been a long time in the cooking. Mm. He started writing it before the Queen died. It's possible that in the wake of the Oprah Winfrey interview when tensions were running high, that things did get spilt out, that now I expect the pair of... That guests. racism allegation, I said this to you before, it never appeared in Harry's book. Yeah. So it's never been mentioned again. So they've moved on. It's like it never... Ha no, it's like it never happened, which, by the way, is what I said at the time. I don't believe this happened. Let me go back to Hillary. Uh, Hillary, what is the reputation of Meghan and Harry in America right now? I mean, does... Do people care? 
Well, actually, I always say when Harry bangs on about mental health, most Americans, it seems, are far more concerned about the price of petrol here, gas, and the you know inflation rate in the U.S. That's the, sort of the main topic of conversation. But I will say this about in the U.S. I tell you an absolute fact. Not only can you look at the polls, Pierce, but look at the A-listers. Look at the Hollywood set. They're not invited to all those A-list events anymore. I think that says a lot because they're the bellwether for the American people. The paparazzi here isn't as interested in them as they were. And look what happened in New York City. They even had to make up that concocted car yeah, chase ridiculous. that the mayor of New York, Eric Adams, yeah, had completely. to repute. Anyone, who's been, in, anyone who's been in New York knew that story was nonsense. Uh, Tessa, final point. We've got about 30 Correct. seconds. He says this is the beginning of the end of the monarchy, is it? No, like I say, Omid Scobie is behind the curve. Harry and Meghan will not have wanted this book to land now. They have been very silent recently. They have dropped on the radar. They did make a few mistakes and they're trying to rebuild. Meanwhile, the monarchy's had a relatively good year, all calm on the Western front. Yep. Let's just poodle along and I expect I Charles and Harry... Will I actually think this might be the end game for Omid Scobie. One of the most loathsome little lickspittles in modern history. Uh, thank you both very much indeed for joining me tonight. Uncensored next, riots in Dublin and a hard-right populist sweeps to victory in the Netherlands. Is anti-migrant rhetoric stoking unrest to our streets? Or do people on the streets actually really care about this issue? Jake Berry, Kevin Maguire will debate. Joining me now is the former chairman of the Conservative Party, Sir Jake Berry, and the Daily Mirror's associate editor, Kevin Maguire. Welcome, chaps. Um, Kevin, I want to talk about immigration and the effect this whole debate is having now on European politics. We saw with Gert Wilders potentially now uh, running the country in the Netherlands. We've seen you know, Italy go this way. We're seeing authoritarian far-right populist leaders sprouting up everywhere. And a lot of it is driven at the base of it by concern by populists about mm. immigration. We now see rioting in Ireland over uh, an Algerian, actually who'd become an Irish citizen, but attacking three children and a woman in the street. Mm. And we saw terrible rioting, but again, yep. driven by this fear of what they believe to be out of control immigration. What do you think of this and what is the smart way to handle this? Yeah, I think it's incredibly dangerous because there has been this lurch to the right, to the hard right in Europe and politicians like Jake will be worried about what happens in the UK where you know, the level of immigration is over half a million, was over three quarters of a million. Uh, right. the, net, the net figures, which, which, are, which are huge. And I think, uh, I think politicians have uh, a responsibility to be calm and reasoned and measured about it. Uh, and also come up with answers, proposals, because what we what we see, and I hope Gert, Gert Wilders, I think he's got 37 of 150 mm. seats, I hope the other parties do not do a deal with him and those who finish second and third, form a coalition maybe with other, other parties because he is so extreme and has spouted so much poison in the past. Yeah. But look, Europe's going right in part because of migration. Well, I think it's a large part of it, actually. And, and the problem with the migration debate in this country is that it seems to me, depending on who you listen to, we need a lot more migrants to come in, but actually we have too many. Right? In other words, it seems to be both, is, if you believe all the noise that's going around the ether. 
the most... I, I thought the best column I read about all this was specifically about migration, but it was a piece by Matthew Paris and the Times about why so many people are coming in from abroad. They're coming, a lot of it, to students, yes, and we're helping out people from Ukraine and Hong Kong and so on. But also, a lot of people are filling jobs British people simply don't want to do. Yeah. There are mm. five million people in this mm. country who now don't want to turn up and do a day's work. And I'm sorry, a lot of them are skivers and they are manipulating a system, particularly, it seems, from Matthew Paris's piece, very well sourced, in the area of mental health. Yeah, so, I mean... This is a challenge across Europe, and I think the other thing we have to accept as politicians is we're in the foothills of the migrant crisis. This is not going to go away. In fact, mm. with things like climate change and insecurity around the world, whether that be in Europe or in the Middle East, it's, it's going to get worse. So politicians need to come up with an answer to this quick, and the answer isn't the hate ideology sort of pushed by people like Gert Wilders mm. and, and other people on the far right of politics. Since we left the European Union, the government controls most of the levers on legal migration. There's things like the salary cap, which is currently 26,200. Mm. I mean, that's far too low. If you want high-skilled immigration, do not set your salary cap below the average UK how salary. Do get, how do we so, get the skivers back to well, work? But you know, because they're clearly gaming the system. We've got to. We've got to stop people bringing uh, workers into the country to to fill low-skilled jobs in a lower, yeah, lower salary than a British person right, would do it. Kevin, so that's a quick way you can do it. You yes, can put that up to 40 grand you can, and but you can deal not, with this very quickly. That's not the problem I'm talking about, Kevin. The problem I'm talking about is if we could just persuade what looks to me like a work-shy country to get back to work, obviously some of them have got legitimate claims to be off sick. But I'm sorry, 5 million people... It's crap. Yeah, well, you're going to have to attack a long-term sickness. You're going to uh, ill health, disability. If you can't do one job, can you do another several job? Million, I've always several I've always, million are claiming yeah. mental health issues, Look, anxiety, always, and so on. Right? Yeah. This has got completely out of control. Yeah. I've always believed if you can work, you should work and, and pay pay your way. But there, the you'll have is... to have you'll have to have a health service that functions. Yeah. And you will have to have a lot of counsellors who will be dealing with people who at, mm. at the moment say they have problems going to work. Mm. And, look, and not everybody with a mental illness is making it up. No, no. And I know no. just sometimes because you can't see it, no, no. you think it's but not But I'm sorry, there. it's several million people basically oh, look, running to their doctors here's, and getting signed off as mentally the ill. The for decades, yeah. we have allowed you know, the answer to low-paid work not to be mm. actually let's invest in productivity and make that job a higher-paid job, let's bring people into the country to do those jobs. That's why I go back to the point, and you slightly dismissed it, and mm. I'm just going to pick you up on that because I think you're wrong. This idea that you can bring people in to earn 26 grand, it is wrong. It's wrong for the no, economy. No, I don't disagree with And that. it's wrong for British people... Don't disagree with that. ...who want those clearly... jobs working, things like hospitality, yeah, I agree. to be proper-paid jobs. I agree. If you want to get people off the dole... Give them yeah, a bit no, of I actually job. agree with you about that. But on the students' thing, it's complicated. We want to bring the bright students into the country to help our universities who've been struggling yeah, but financially. Don't let them bring their families in. But, yeah, but who do you leave out of their families? Can they bring their wife, their yeah. kids, both? I mean, you know, these are serious questions. Uh, yeah, I think it's uh, direct dependence, close dependence. You can you can bring in. But you don't want to say something, I don't think the government has thought through any yeah, of yeah, these yeah. policies. But you know, students that they they come in, they pay more than it's a like British-born, huge degree. amounts, huge amounts of money a year, in, and then they they go around the world, or sometimes they're allowed to stay mm. here, but they go around the world thinking, well, a Britain. It's a great way of extending. Final Britain. question: Is it going to cost them the election, the Conservatives, if they don't get this right, either legal or illegal immigration? No, I think the economy and the fact that most households will be £1,900 worse off than the last okay, election is what's going to cost them the election.
How big will immigration... Uh, it will be a big issue, bit? and what I'd say is the Labour Party's got no answer. So people, I think, will give <laughs> the Prime Minister and his team quite a lot of credit for trying to deal with this. The Labour Party's answer is just okay. bring but more that, people but in. Actually, the Labour, party, in, the Labour Party said end the 20% uh, okay. reduction on wages. Leave it there. Chaps, you, you'd agree with Labour. You. Thank okay. you both very much. It's not easy, I doubt this. It. <laughs> I doubt it. Thank you very much. Uh, that's it from me. Whatever you're up to, keep it uncensored. Good night.